Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Both Laugh, the Dying Scene Quarantine Chat Show. As always, I am your host, Jay Stone, and we are up to episode 57 of this show. Uh, we're officially well into our third year of doing this show. Uh, every spike in pandemic numbers seems to uh, indicate that I guess the show should just live on for infinity. So that's what we're going to do. Um, there are some fun things coming down the pike in the dying scene world. Some of you may know that from listening to other episodes. If you uh, only catch a couple here and there, that's great. And we certainly thank you for doing so. Um, but stay tuned, especially over the course of the next couple of weeks, some real cool actual things. And who knows, you might see the website actually uh, spring itself back to life. Um, there's a lot of us that have been working pretty hard on making sure that that can happen and to bring more new and fun and different content and different voices and things of that nature. Uh, so really stay tuned. Uh, bookmark dyingscene.com, bookmark this podcast, and uh, you'll I think you'll be happy you did. Um, but for now, episode 57 features um, the person that I have interviewed the most over the years, and that is none other than Dave Hawes. Um, he was a guest on episode 25 of this show. He was the very first person, I think, that I sat down with and interviewed in person uh, when I started doing interviews at all back when I thought that I was a writer, uh, which I still think I am, except that the website crashed a couple of years ago. So I haven't really been writing and I'm not sure I can formulate a sentence at this point, but I'm going to have to again soon. Um, but yeah, Dave was the first guy that I sat down with. It was um, backstage at a show when he was opening up for Flogging Molly. And we talked about uh, a lot of things. We talked about how that show had been going and his transition from being the front man of a punk band to being out on his own and the writing process that led to uh, what would eventually become Devour, which he had not recorded yet, uh, but was still very much writing. And, and fast forward a little bit, and that has become one of my Desert Island albums, as some people know, and as he knows. Um, and so it's been fun to sort of follow his uh, solo career over the years. We've talked a bunch. I think this is, I think you'll hear me say that this is the eighth time we've chatted. Um, not always for his stuff. Sometimes, you know, he helped me with a project I wrote about Lucero back five or six or seven years ago now, whatever it was. Um, so it's been great. It's been really fun to watch him in various different projects and different iterations of his own band and the loved ones and the Falcon and things like that over the last decade. Um, he's been, a, a, a sort of guiding light from a songwriting perspective for a long time, which, which is saying something. I, I don't use those words lightly, particularly when he's a guy that's essentially my age. And so it's kind of sometimes weird to look at your peers as those guiding lights that way. We always think about the older brothers or the grandfathers or like Neil Young's, Eddie Vedder's, Bruce Springsteen's, Tom Petty's and whatever. But um, Dave's voice has been a constant in my life for a long time. And so uh, it's always fun to chat. We, uh, we chatted about a lot about his latest album, uh, Blood Harmony, which came out, gosh, six months ago now, uh, on his own label for the first time. Um, and so we talked about what into, went into that process. We talked about recording in Nashville. We talked about recording with Will Hogue and the sort of heavy hitters in the Nashville scene that played on this album. Uh, we talked about what's coming up for him, for his brother, Tim, what's good in the family. We talked about the art of chasing the song, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as always, it's a fun chat with my pal Dave, and I hope that you all enjoy it. 
Uh, stay tuned right after the intro music, which most of you should know is Kali Masi. Uh, they were nice enough to give me an excerpt of the song uh, Hurts to Laugh from their last album, which is called Laughs. The show is called Both Laugh. Uh, I think Sam very much got what I was going for because he was going for the same thing when naming the last album. And so uh, the intro music, if you're only listening for the first time now, is a clip from a song by Kali Masi. Um, and Sam from Kali Masi just turned 30 yesterday or the day before. Happy belated, Sam. Anyway, without further ado, Here's the theme music, and then uh, episode 57, Both Laugh, Dying Scene Quarantine Chat Show. Dave Hawes, check it out. So, uh, hey, one and all, it's time for another episode of Both Laugh, the Dying Scene Quarantine Chat Show. Uh, every single variant that comes out prompts me to get back on uh, Zoom and keep doing these things uh, because it's just here forever now. Our guest on this episode is making his second appearance on this show, and I think by my count, it's like our eighth time actually doing an interview sort of thing, uh, which is probably some sort of record, either for you or for me or for both. Uh, Dave Haas, welcome back. Thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. I, there's certain things that um, are charms, you know, like they're good luck charms. There's a record store in Philly that I play every time I release a record, no matter how ridiculous. And, yeah. how, uh, um, you know, it, meaning like, hey, we've done that. But I'm like, yeah, but we did it and it was cool and let's keep doing it. And I think this yeah. is one of those things for me. I'm like, wait a second. We haven't talked on a new record. And that means that the record isn't totally realized. <laughs> We haven't talked about it. <laughs> well, well, I think especially nowadays where, you know, vinyl is this sort of thing that exists in the ether and not everybody always has vinyl. And so it might come out six months after the record. So so I, I feel kind of OK, but like I can't go to the store necessarily and buy Blood Harmony yet. So uh, like I have it, obviously, but I can't go to the store and buy it. So maybe it's not really out yet. So. It depends on what store and yeah. it depends on. I mean, yeah, we're getting we're getting our vinyl in increments, you know, like we've yeah. had, all right, another thousand are coming on this date, you know, and then a thousand go to the European place. And so it's, it's been interesting to kind of navigate that. I mean, one thing we're doing differently on the next release, which will be Tim's debut record. And then on my next record is we will have the vinyl in hand before the release day. Like that is a thing we're so not four we, years from now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're planning really far in advance now be, yeah. for this very thing, just because, um, you know, watching kind of how the, the seas have changed. It's like, you got to sail differently. So yeah, I don't, I'm not thrilled with that paradigm where it's like, yeah, the record's out, but the vinyl will be here in, God knows when, you know, it's weird. I get it. It's, it's just sort of symptomatic of the business and all that stuff. But like, I don't want to do that again. The next time we say we have a record, you'll be able to like grab the, actually go to the record store. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's, uh, you know, that's a weird thing, man. I did. I still go to, for, for new releases and things that I've been 
fired up about it. I'll still go to the record store like day that something comes out. I think that that's like an important thing. And maybe because it reminds me of being 16 and going to get like Pearl Jam albums or whatever at midnight. Uh, And not that you can find a store that's open at midnight in suburbia (laughs) nowadays, but at least they open when they open if they have staff. Yeah, it's important to have rituals that are attached to the things you love. And and it's okay if ours are slightly outdated. And, you know, I, I think that's okay. Like whatever whatever uh, makes it the most enriching experience, I think, is cool. I mean, what you're describing is someone who's going to go buy an album and then put it on and listen to it very, very closely, which is mm-hmm. like, sir, that's the center of the bullseye for, for us. Like, yeah, yeah. do that. Those are the people that I'm sort of writing towards. And then, you know, there are always rings on the bulls. There are people who just want to come to the show and they've heard six of the songs and they're like, this is cool. As long as they play three of those six, yeah, yeah. I'm in. You're like, that's that's just always been true. So, um, but what you're describing, that sort of like real close listen to, to determine what's happening on an album or whatever a songwriter is trying to say or how they're trying to deliver it. I think that's, that's kind of what you hope for when you, when you put all this time and effort into doing it. Do you think that's true of a lot of people that are songwriters nowadays, or because do you think that the way that we consume music has sort of warped that for some people? And because, because everything is less album centric than it used to be. And do you, I think it's been warped. Yeah. I mean, it's inevitable. I mean, I, I think that the technology has always changed the way that we, do things, you know, getting back to the steam engine, you know, suddenly <laughs> you're doing things differently because this massive thing changed it. And I, I mean, we're guilty of that too. And I don't mean guilty. Like there's an actual value judgment, around, but I, I guess what I mean is like, I'm doing things much differently than I did even 10 years ago. And certainly when I was in a band and certainly different from the bands that took me out on tour and stuff. So it, it should change. I think, Um, but, but again, I mean, my level of, of, uh, focus on, on trying to write, I don't want that to change, you know, just because what we do has a more disposable, um, a disposable air to it in culture. It doesn't make it any less important to me. Yeah. And I mean, and I think that that can be true for all kinds of things like, whatever you want it to be, you can keep it that way. Even if the whole culture decides like it's less important to them, you know? Yeah. I guess if it's the thing that, or one of the things that helps keep you sort of focused on how you write, then that's a good thing. And there, and obviously there are enough of us, I think who do care about that stuff and pay attention to us that the bulls, the center of the bullseye might be small, but it exists. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just did an interview for the moment for Brian Koppelman's podcast. Yeah, and he yeah. me, it was the first thing he asked me was the same thing. He was like, how do you listen to music? And, you know, I do the same thing everybody does to some degree. If it's something I'm not that familiar with, I, it'll come on while my wife and I are chopping vegetables or I'm cleaning up the boys' trains for the day. And it's it's more of a secondary listen. If it's somebody that I've been on a journey with that I can't wait for their new album to come out or something that really rings my bell, well, then I'm a lot more um, doing, I'm doing a much deeper dive. I'm putting my earphones in and, and laying in bed and listening or listening on a drive and carving out the time. So I think like, it's just, 
it all this is is just part of a bigger picture of like of a really loud and chaotic world that's always coming at you and so yeah, for yeah. me like music is a thing that i use to cope with all that and so i do try to carve out the time to to focus and so i'm always grateful when someone does that with the music that, that we make do you ever like it obviously people release singles in advance of an album and if there's an album that you're really uh fired up about listening to do you ever ignore the singles until the album comes out because it's a thing that i consciously try to do uh, i've noticed that you've said that yeah you've, you've told me this before my yeah. friend Pete, who uh owns the tasty in philadelphia sure. the vegan restaurant she's uh worked as a music manager and she's an old punk rocker and that's her thing she waits till the vinyl's in her hands to listen um it's just like her ritual and she's like i don't care if there's a, a track out i don't want to yeah. hear it. um no i don't do that i i want to know what's because i i also think as much as you want people to kind of focus on the whole work there is a certain amount of creative choice involved in what song you want to put forth first and what statement you want to make. And I, mean, I think like now that Tim and I own the master, you know, we, we, we are the label and we're the, the songwriters. There's an interesting set of choices that are ahead where we don't have to do it the way Sony records does it. And the yeah, way yeah. we've done it before, like one idea we've had is, with, you know, because Tim has a debut record coming out. And one thing I would love to do is to have the vinyl available, right? And then the songs come out every month for 10 months after the vinyl's available for an artist like that, where it's like, well, why are we giving Spotify and the Spotify community first bite of this? And the people who spent $25 on a piece of vinyl, <laughs> they have to wait. Right. And this was actually Tim's idea for Blood Harmony. We just we, the vinyl shortage was so acute that we ha we couldn't do that. We would still be waiting to put Blood Harmony out. And, you know, there is a, an issue of like put it out and go tour and all that other jazz. But but I find that to be a really interesting thing where it's like, well, why would Spotify like why don't we just put things out on Spotify when we'd like to? Spotify is cool with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and why don't we have the, the golden ticket kind of thing be given to the fan first, given to the person who's devoted to the music. They get it first. They've heard it before everybody else. Right. So there's something compelling about that now that we have more control over the um, delivery system. I remember that just evoked a really specific memory, but I remember... I feel like every time we talk, I bring up Pearl Jam and I apologize for that, <laughs> although I shouldn't. Uh, but I remember when when Vitology came out, it came out on vinyl first and it came out two weeks before anybody else had heard any of it and before the um, cassette and the CD came out. So I remember buying mm -hmm. it. My dad took me to some like two towns away because it was the only record store that had it. Yeah. And I remember putting it on his old record player and then calling my friend who was a big Pearl Jam fan to like explain what the album yeah. was doing. But I felt like I, like you said, I had the golden ticket. Like I had yeah. that before anybody else could even hear it. Right. Yeah. But, but I physically had it. Like it wasn't just, I got an advanced email of it or whatever. It was like, it was something cool. And I went and bought it and uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that in what I'm trying at the ripe old age now, you know, well, certainly over the hill, as, as <laughs> you know, most people would maybe describe it. But 
I'm trying to get creative with that. The intersection of art and music or whatever, or sorry, music and commerce or whatever that is, you know, the creativity where it meets the um, economics of it has never been a comfortable intersection for yeah. most people and particularly myself. But what I'm trying to do now is look at it more creatively, like, okay, well, here's another creative choice. We can do it the way we want. You don't have to do it the way it's always been done. The whole thing has been upended and changed. And so, you know, that said, we're still working within the paradigm of albums, which is an archaic thing. It's something I think is really cool. Yeah. And so for now, I'll continue to do that. But how we deliver it to streaming and how we, um, you know, what we do after an album's out, like we're about to release the third B-side from Blood Harmony in a couple of weeks we just kept things coming after the record came out. And that's been really fun. You know, like it's, you can sort of lament that or you can, you know, embrace it and, and try to be creative with it. And then like have interesting things to add to your set list or, you know, little surprises for people. Like if, you know, there's this song called without you that we put out that probably should have gone on the record. Um, but it didn't and it came out people really liked it. And we, we decided to end most of the shows or open a lot of the shows with that song. And suddenly you get this like whole different impact with a song that at one point you were ambivalent about putting your, on your record now becomes like fan favorite. So there's some fun, creative things that you can do with it. Um, And I've been trying to look at it more like that than look at the glass being half full or, or filled with piss or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I've been looking at it more like, all right, this is the world we live in. Let's, let's take the things about it that we like and apply them and go with it. And the things we don't want to do, we can skip. Why the decision now to put the album out uh, on your own as your own sort of label or you and Tim, was that a thing you had talked about in the, in the past wanting to do and, and now it was just a good time to do it or. No, I never wanted to do it. I, I thought it was um, going to be too much work. And I thought, you know, I, and again, that discomfort of like, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to be like a, a suit. I just want to keep it pure. It's like, yeah, until you start looking at what, what, what basically happened. How can I say this with like all the, the proper. So we, we put out, four albums on the same record label mm-hmm. and um and they they were they were licenses so i'll get those masters back after 10 years or whatever and what started to happen was they were doing just incrementally a little bit better each time and i i kind of started to see like okay well if if we're not going to be doing like explosively better every time then I, I kind of started to understand the process more and more and was like, okay, well, if I understand how this goes and I build my own team, I can benefit economically way more if I own it and don't license it out than if somebody else does that. And so really it just became like, all right, we sort of outgrew that. And I just learned enough about it to go like, all right, let's try. It. And then in the pandemic, we did the patty patty thing, which yeah. was like, that was our, um, I was like, well, let's try it. You know, we're, we're not touring. Obviously we're not, um, this is a weird album. If we yeah, can, it's sell a little it, more of a niche thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even describing it to people is like, well, there's these two <laughs> songwriters, you know, right. that you probably haven't heard of, or you've heard of one of them. Right. 
And uh, I really like them. And so I recorded two EPs and put it on either side of a vinyl. One of them's named Patty and the other one's named Patty. Like, even that description is like, you're like, people are like, you lost me. I'm, yeah. But it did really well. And and we sold enough copies to where it was like, oh, well, if we can do that on this peculiar indulgent release that I made, you know, passing files back and forth via email with my brother 2,000 miles away, well, we can go make a studio album. And probably do really well and at this point blood harmony has sold more records than any of the other albums and they were on a, essentially a label that was partnered with a major right. and that's that's no fault of theirs like they've got bigger artists they've got bigger fish to fry they've got different channels they've got different priorities when my manager alex and tim and i just stuck our nose to the grindstone and said well we want to sell this thing we want this to do well it did well. And, and so just by keeping it and being deliberate about it and strategic about it and creative, um, it was more successful and, and we reap the benefits of that. So it's, it's kind of been, it's been really great. It's been really gr like gratifying and exciting and gave us the courage to, you know, the reason I was late for this, I was listening to mixes of Tim's new record. Oh, awesome. And, and that's like, I'm like, Oh, this, that won't put us into the poor house. Like we'll be okay. <laughs> um, so it's weird. It's like, it's just been this kind of awakening and also knowing that I get all the old records back. Yeah. That is great to know that like those will be ours and I'll have control of them. And there's, there's other like much bigger artists that do it this way. Jason Isbell does it this way. And um, who else owns their uh, Sturgill Simpson owns his masters. I think like may maybe he's on a major level now. I don't, I don't exactly I want to say he's 30 tigers. I feel like that's sort of the thing that people do is they go the 30 tigers route when there's, when they're sort of doing their own thing, because I think you, I've had it explained to me the way that that partnership is different. For, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an artist forward thing. Yeah. Like you often you fund your own album. So you're taking that risk, but then they're also, you, they put you they put it in the distribution channels and and they take their percentage but it's a tiny percentage mm -hmm. and all of the money that comes back goes to the artist and yeah. to, or to the artist label or whatever so that's kind of the nutshell way to do it and so that's just given us more more work but also kind of more freedom to do what we want and and it's been exciting you know like not to jump right in on the, the whole business side but like that's <laughs> that's been kind of the backdrop under which like, that's why we're going in to record my next record soon is because like, I'm like, well, let's just keep writing and keep putting out music. Like if people are excited to hear it and we stand to benefit and I can spend more time at home with my kids, like, right. Let's just keep going. Are you going to go back to Nashville again? Well, let's, so, so I'll pause that question and we'll talk about this little fella. I can pretend I'm Conan or whatever when I do this. Uh, <laughs> right. And now he's six months old, so he can sit up on his own now, Blood Harmony. Yes, uh, he can. That's, um, you recorded in Nashville this time yeah. at, uh, at Sound Emporium. Is that, yeah. so Sound Emporium is obviously one of those places that's got a lot of ghosts in it. Are you the kind of guy that, like knowing who has recorded at a place where there's, REM, Emmy Lou Harris, Elvis Costello, et cetera, et cetera. Do you get into like feeling the sort of ghosts in the, in the walls there sort of, we were talking before we started recording about places like Fenway park and whatever. And, and sort of when you sit there, you can sort of lose yourself for a minute in the history of a place. So do you do that sort of thing? It's not the first sort of uh, 
place like, with some longevity that you've recorded, but do you feel yeah. that sort of stuff when you're recording there? Yeah, I do. I get into that headspace and I feel, um, you know, the initial feeling is a, one of a little bit of overwhelmed. You're like, what the hell is my Philly ass doing here? Um, right. But it, it's also like, there's a big encouragement in that. Okay. Well, will this producer decided to put it here and he thinks it's this room will take the songs that we made and take them to glory you know and so and so we've made sort of a decision through that process like no that is an appropriate place to record it's not it's not ocean way where you're spending like an enormous amount of money and time and you're on a clock or whatever but it's a it's a place that sounds really good and and you know, the, the cast of musicians that we had play on it were certainly deserved to be there. They were incredible. Right. It's a phenomenal um, roster you have on that. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but yeah. And so to have them all learn the songs and go like, we really love this, or this is great. You know, and like that energy was, was so in there that um, that overwhelmed part gives way to like a certain level of like humble confidence where you're like, okay, well, let's do it. Let's do our best. Let's give it hell and hope for the best. And, um, you know, hope to live up a little bit to, to the, um, the large footprint or shadow that's cast over by all these wonderful artists, everybody from Casey Musgraves to, to Alison Krauss to, you know, everybody you named. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild. You know, Robert Plant was in there singing it. Yeah. yeah. So you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, how early in the process of writing and picking the songs that were going to be on the album, did you know who the players were going to be? Was that sort of like stuff that will lined up for, for people that don't know? Uh, Chris Powell plays drums on the record. He's got a long studio history in Nashville. Tom Bukovac, who has played with Will an awful lot. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll talk about Will in a minute. Sadler Faden from uh, the 400 unit, Jason Isbell's band, the one and only Gary W. Talent, which when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, especially as like a like a jersey or a jersey adjacent guy that's pretty fucking cool it was really cool <laughs> but how early in the process did you guys uh have them lined up and do you when you get into a studio with guys like that do you say okay play what tim and i wrote or do you give them the freedom to sort of like your sadler vade and your gary talent kind of like if you want to change directions or do something else go ahead um i you know you would be crazy to not let those guys bring ideas to bear, you know, like why have them if you're, if you just right. want them to play exactly what you want. Um, so yeah, they had freedom and, and a lot of cool things happen that way where they're like, what about this? Like, yeah, that's cool. That's a great little voicing of the chord or that's a great little baseline or yeah, maybe we should play it with that feel. And, and so in, in a lot of respects, having that band there took a few of the songs from the treatment you hear on like North star, little wings and leave it in that dream more of the songs were meant to sound that way initially. And so when we were in there, I was like, well, let's try Gary in this like sort of Elvis Costello vibe because of this little bass thing that Gary talent did do, 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 you know? And it was like, Oh, wow. That's cool. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's go for that. And so there were a couple instances like that. That happened on snow globe where, um, where Sadler said like, you guys like Soundgarden, right? And I was like, yeah, of course. And he was, and I was like, how's he going to, How's he going to take the song? You know, what's he mean? And he was like, let's just on the loud part, go full loud. And it was like, right. Yes. And so um, 
yeah, there were instances like that. But um, in terms of the process of knowing when they were going to do it, I didn't believe they were going to be there until that morning, you know, because until they walk in the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like um, it was pretty late. It was pretty late. And, and, and Will's pretty chill, you know, like on the Zoom, he was like, well, I'm thinking like we call Sadler. And I was like, oh, that'd be cool. He's like, I'm thinking Gary Talent for bass. And I'm going like, yeah, I think <laughs> gonna do this. Um, and then even Bukovac, I was aware of who he was through his like quarantine guitar lesson thing. And he's like basically the best guitar player right. in Nashville or whatever, the best guitar player in the world. Right. And um, a studio guy. And when he mentioned him, I was like, get out of here. And then <laughs> Will was like, but you got to understand, like when he came to town, I, I met him and we're old friends. So it's and so I was sort of not quite 100 percent sure that Will wasn't bullshitting me initially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I talked to my manager about it. And Alex was like, but look, if somebody came to you, if Will came to you and said, I want to make a punk rock record. And I want you to produce it. He was like, you would call Johnny Two Bags from Social Distortion. Yeah, right. You would call Brian Baker from Bad Religion. And there'd be a certain element of Will going, are you sure you can get yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Right. They happen to be your friends. He was like, that's just true for Will in Nashville. And these guys are people that he knows that are willing to play on it. And that's just how the city works. And I was like, okay, if you say so. But again, I, I do think like, I wasn't sure. Like, I certainly wouldn't have been surprised if the morning of they were like, Gary called in sick. Yeah, you know, he's uh, or Gary is playing for the Queen of England today instead of doing your <laughs> record. I, I would have been very not surprised. So, um, yeah, it was wild. It was it was a really fun experience. And and I mean, I think that the whole Nashville thing, it's just where so much music is concentrated now. So many of the studios in Los Angeles and New York have closed. So many of those engineers have moved to Nashville because it's still a place that has its target on uh, pointed towards the radio um mm. and th and that's where so much money is made and so therefore they can sort of have this whole industry that revolves around music still because they can still get country songs on the radio right. um as that changes we'll see what happens to the town because the town has really exploded but um it's not really a just country music at all it's like all kinds of music gets made there now and and because of the concentration of of talent and studios and equipment and all that stuff. So um, we'll probably continue to go there based on the network we have now of people and, um, you know, just knowing Will and David Axelrod who mixed and engineered the record, those players, like we'll probably, and, and there's also tons of songwriters there. So yeah. it just, it kind of makes sense to go, um, to go there because it's just, it's easier to do than, than try to organize it in, in Los Angeles or Philadelphia or something like that. I mean, it can be done, but yeah. just faster and more efficient to kind of go there and work. How did you and Will hook up? So Will's obviously for people, I would assume that people know who Will Hogue is. He was, he was guest on episode number 12 of this show. So uh, some people should know who he is. Uh, mm -hmm. He's obviously this, really amazing and witty and smart and powerful songwriter who's done the Nashville songwriter thing. So he's written songs, not just for himself, but for other people. And I'm always fascinated by how that world, the actual professional songwriter world works too. But Me I know, too. and I know he's produced his own records. I don't recall him producing other people's in the past. Though. How did you guys cook up? Did he? 
Yeah, he produced a Stephen Kellogg record, I think, and maybe a couple others. <clears throat> but I was mostly basing my faith in his production on on his own his own records that he had produced. And and basically just like the Zoom that we had. We I mean, it's not that interesting of a story, just in that we have the same agent and the oh, okay. same manager. Okay. I meaning like we didn't like meet one night at a at a gala event or yeah. something off. Like it was more like Alex, our he manages both of us was like, you should have will produce your record. I was like, okay, we'll take a call. You know, like if he wants to, does he want to do it? And Alex was like, yeah, he said he'd love to. I sent him a couple of the demos, which I was like, why did you do that? You know, <laughs> and I, well, those weren't ready for people to hear. And he said, I don't know. He really likes it. And so we just hopped on a zoom and, you know, will could, he could, uh, he could charm the pants off of just about anybody. So yeah. I was, smitten. I was like, oh, I love this guy. He's basically like my Southern cousin, you know, like, who's, you know, yeah. And, you know, and who didn't come up on punk. Like he's, you know, like at one point we sort of had that conversation. I was like, so what is your, what's your understanding of the punk thing? And he was like, um, social distortion, the Ramones, bad religion and green day. And I was like, well, they're kind of all the best at it. You don't <laughs> right. really need any. Like what I was like, Fugazi. Right. He's like, no. I was like, check out Fugazi. Yeah, and then yeah. you're good. Uh, Basically, he brings none of that baggage. He brings none of that um stuff, but he also doesn't have that that um community. So it's like it's interesting to kind of work together with somebody who's who is just totally not at all from that world. I mean, he's open for social distortion and all that other stuff, but um but yeah, so that was really fun to to um, to meet him. And I mean, we we connect mostly on Tom Petty and stuff like that. You know, like he's that's his uh, that's his guiding light, just as it is mine. And and so, yeah, we just hit it off. We're still hitting it off. Um, we're we're going to announce some tour dates together pretty soon. And he just uh, he just came out on tour with us through the through the West Coast. Um, when we started touring on Blood Harmony. So, yeah, it's, I, it's a great relationship. I, I can't remember what my introduction to him was, if it was through opening for Social D or maybe through a Lucero. I feel like all of everybody I know is sort of like through Lucero tangentially, at least yeah, the last yeah. 10 years or so. Because uh, uh -huh. they, they've played a bunch of shows together. and, and Oh, whatnot, have but, they? Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, or, well, I've seen them together and it was at, it was in Memphis, actually. So maybe I don't know if they actually toured together or just did a couple. Like he did Block Party a couple times, I think, down oh, in Memphis. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was this really crazy story involved in some of that. But um, but so when I heard that he was producing your album, it took me a minute. I went, well, that actually sounds perfect because what I know of Will and how he writes and how he is as a person and what I knew of you, obviously, who you are as a person and a songwriter, I said that makes an awful lot of sense, actually. Like there, yeah. there's sort of this yin and yangy thing going on and yeah, that totally. in that he's sort of started in obviously in Nashville and in the country and Americana worlds, and it, but has sort of, he does have his like tentacles in the punk rock world since the social D thing, especially. And, and you've kind of gone the other way with it. I was like, that actually might be perfect. Yeah. And I think it was in that sense, like he was able to bring a sensibility that, that um, I've been searching for. And then also encouraged a lot of the rock stuff that I was maybe trying to tame a little bit. Like when he, when he was like, there were points where he was like, no, go all in. 
And um, which is why I think on Blood Harmony, you don't just have totally a gentle record. You don't, you know, there's Snow Globe and Gary and Carry the Lantern and stuff like that. There are up-tempo rockers. And um, he just is a serve the song kind of guy. Um, the other thing that was cool though is like, he doesn't drink. Um, it never has. So he's not like a sober guy, but, but mm. just not in that world. His wife is a therapist and so is mine. Mm-hmm. He's got two, two sons, which mm-hmm. is, you know, they're, they're older, but like, there are a lot of uh, similarities and, and um, he's just a little bit older than I am too. So there was a little bit of like the big brother thing, you know, it was like, he, he got started a little sooner than I did. And um, he's kind of seen things from a much different lens essentially doing the same thing you know mm. like just making up songs putting them on records and putting them out um he had a big hit in about 10 years ago with uh, a song called even if it breaks your heart so that's a, a really interesting kind of you know world that he's seen that i i don't know anything about and so yeah it's it's been great it's been great he he produced tim's record and um he uh worked on this other kind of slightly secret project that we're in the middle of. And then, and then we won't it, tell anybody. It, it looks like, uh, it looks like um, I have a meeting actually after this interview with them about um, my next record. So, Oh, great. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see if, if you know, hopefully he still wants to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine he wouldn't uh, particularly because of the way blood harmony came out. It's a great, it's not just a great record full of songs. It's a great sounding record. And I Thanks, think that, yeah. I think that you all obviously did a good job. And I think you've referenced snow globe a couple of times. And I think I texted you maybe the first day I heard the song actually probably driving home from that show in Shirley, the middle yeah. of effing nowhere. Uh, mm-hmm. Cause that was the first time I heard snow globe. And that's such a good and different sounding song that, that I like when somebody that I've been following for years and years and years has this other sort of left turn and it kind of makes you wow. Like, like I know, I know your songs and I know kind of like the way that you write songs. And so to have one that's completely structured different and it sounds different and it's got a whole different feel to it. I was like, damn, he's onto something here. This is a really cool song. Thanks, man. Yeah. The um, there's been a lot of people that have followed for a long time, really gravitated, gravitated towards that song. And, and that's, that's cool when you take a left turn and people follow you. Um, the next batch of songs has a couple more left turns where it's like, wait, what, what are we doing here? Well, that sort um, of brings up a thing that I wanted to talk about in, in reading. I read a lot of, I read a lot of the press about the album, which mm-hmm. I don't always do. Um, yeah. But there's a thing that came up a couple of times, uh, whether maybe it was on people magazine or Rolling Stone country, something like that. But um, this idea of chasing the song, and so uh, to me, that's a really sort of fascinating way to look at songwriting. But I'm curious on like what that process sort of is for you. And this isn't really a a, a fancy way of asking like what comes first, the melody or the harmony, whatever. <laughs> but like, but that idea of chasing the song for you, it's it's clearly important because it's a thing that you mentioned in a couple of different interviews. But I wanted to dig a little deeper in that. Okay. And what is it actually look like for you and is chasing a song so much as like picking up a guitar and seeing what it has in it for that day or is it like sitting down with a sound like i want to write a uh, an americana song or i want to write a song on ukulele or whatever like how does that actually sort That's of go for you question it i mean i think it's like you're trying to find the soul of the idea 
right? So like, and the idea might come with a melody or come with a lyrical thing that you really want to hang your hat on, or it, it comes in different forms. But then sort of like every part of the process, you're putting like another layer of clothing on it or like, okay, well, these are the socks and these are the, this is the winter coat or whatever it is that you're sort of dressing onto the soul of that idea. And which is, I don't know, maybe if you read this in print, it's going to look ridiculous, but ultimately <laughs> you're just trying to find. Um, I mean, now that, now that we're in sort of this cycle of like writing songs, recording them and then touring them as part of the enterprise of being a professional or whatever, um, you have less time to get to the soul of it, you know, cause you're, you do need to put out an album or you do need to go on tour. Or you do need to just get that song played. So you have to settle on the best chords in that moment or the best, but in that same regard, over time, the, the song typically changes the more you play it. And, and we like to play them totally different ways. We like to go out as a duo or a trio. We like to go out with the mermaid, the full band, um, and so I like to search for the soul of the song long after it's been recorded too, you know, because that could also change from night to night. There's, there's Tuesday night shows that are seated that are way different experiences than a Saturday in Boston at a, at a rock club. And so the right. soul of that song might be more appropriately delivered on a Tuesday in a dinner theater differently than at a rock show or at a festival or whatever. So I think, when I say like, I'm looking, I'm always chasing the song. Like I'm chasing the song after it even gets recorded. Cause yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause there's also errors that get made or, or judgments that weren't right for it. Or, you know, there's all, I mean, there's this story you might've read like years ago. Um, we went, we hadn't played with, with Fallon for a while and we went out on a European tour and he hadn't heard shaky Jesus. He wasn't, he was like, and he, came we walked through soundcheck and heard it and was like what is that and it was just tim and i playing it super finger picked and he was like this is the song oh my god and i was like what what is he talking this song's been out for a year yeah it's not a hit like what's he so worked up over and he went back into the backstage to listen to it i guess and we were having we got to dinner and we got the catering and he goes drums. I hear him yell from the other room. And I said, what is he, what are you on about? He goes, you put drums on it and guitars or, you know, loud guitars. What have you done? And I was like, dude, this is long. This version you're hearing is a new version. He was like, but it's the version. And so that's and that, funny. Yeah. And, and, and that. There we were. Oh, I don't know. If Oh, you paused. One of us froze for a second, but we're good. Um, you know, let's record it this way. And sometimes you don't get it right. And um, and so therefore you're sort of still chasing it after. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, that's just sort of my res- relationship to it. Like everyone's kind of different. There are obviously artists who have like the definitive version of fill in the blank song. You know, Mr. Brightside is like, it's kind of perfect or um whatever you know the the peter gabriel song or who fill in the blank you know give it away that's like that's the version and maybe that's how they play it every night but but a lot of a lot of times i'm just always searching has that always been the case is that's i mean it's probably a little more difficult to do in a in a traditional three or four or five piece punk rock band to sort of because the 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 sort of scope of what you can do 
or what you can get away with uh, is probably a little more narrow. Um, but but has that been a thing for a long time? Um, it's been a thing for a long time. It's part of the reason why it was more appealing to go out by myself or go out on my own, so to speak, than be in the constraints of a quote unquote, like signed yeah, punk yeah. rock band. You know, I was right. like, well, right. that means the thing that means a certain. Yeah. And, and I think it's still probably to my uh, commercial detriment. Like, I think that people get confused and go like, wait, what are you doing? Um, even whereas, now, even whatever a decade in. Not necessarily the people that are already down for it and, and have followed along, but like people who are maybe f- further out, like, oh, wait, Dave Haas has a new song. All right. And they might listen to it and go like, what is this? This isn't, this sounds nothing like what I heard. Yeah. The last time I tuned in, which might have been which was three the records. bridge. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah. yeah. Which is OK, too. But but um, I guess for me, like. I guess I'm just kind of. Committed to to chasing that instead of. Instead of the other things that often come along with being in the music industry, I mm-hmm. think, because I, I got to be careful here. I don't want to critique someone else's path. Like if you're in a band that you really enjoy being in and you guys make certain magic and it's become a classic band that people can count on and you may have a really cool t-shirt and a really cool banner and a really cool culture around that. That's great. I love that. I don't necessarily want that though. Mm. I don't want to do that. I think um, I'm just kind of chasing something different. I don't, I want to be able to keep moving and keep changing. And and if that means I lose people along the way and gain people along the way, I think I'm mostly all right with that. Um, it's scary now that yeah. I have children, but I, <laughs> I just think like, that's what my favorite artists have done for the most part chase the muse even if it goes into weird places it goes down weird alleys and 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 up to weird mountaintops and people go like wait what you made that album (laughs) that's okay you know like hopefully the the true north of of what i'm doing does stay the same and 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 the people who are interested in that come along for the most part and uh yeah, I don't I think that's just kind of the way I want to do it. And it's OK if it's different from from even some of my dearest friends like that's that's OK. It's and it's OK if they end up sort of more commercially successful, too. Like, I'm all right with all that. It's I think I think <laughs> I'm at my best. I'm, I'm OK with all that. Well, you do have two kids as well. So as you have to balance that, but you have to be at least a little commercially successful. It's not like the old well, days. Well, the good thing is I am really attached to choruses. I really like choruses. Yeah. I was raised in the church and then I was raised with rock and roll. So those two things are real chorus heavy. So I, at, at heart, that's what I'm just gravitated towards naturally. So even if it's weird, there'll probably be a chorus. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's still going to be some whoa-oh-oh somewhere for- Somewhere. There'll for be the... something that you go, oh, that's a hook. You know, just because I do have that like, like, you know, I grew up when Reckless came out and and uh, Thriller and all that kind of stuff, you know, so like it's just I love a certain element of pop that, you know, I the song's not done until there's something you can kind of sing or at least I can remember, you know, I got to be able to remember it, which means it has to have some hook that's at least suitable in my estimation. So 
I think that's the thing that the souls did probably as better as good as anybody in the, in the punk sort of side of the thing is they, they, yeah, they're from Jersey still. So they, they are Jersey rockers who happen to be in a punk band. So they, they can write Jersey rock songs that have a bunch of woes and yeah, there might yeah. be three chords or whatever, but I feel like they did that thing sort Amazing. of as good as anybody. Oh my God. And, and they're, they're sort of what I'm describing as a thing I don't necessarily want, those are dear friends of mine who have that thing. And it's a, incredible. And maybe because I was so close to it and, and didn't have it, you know, when I was in a punk rock band, it was more, um, it wasn't my best friends that we came out of high school together. And yeah. so I've seen like the greatest iteration of that in the bouncing souls. And I'm, I'm like, well, that's not, that's not what I have. My, all my high school friends got jobs. <laughs> right. Um, they're they they tapped out of this yeah. um and maybe that comparison makes it i'm like ah i'll just go do my own thing because i i, I sort, certainly can't join their band i mean maybe they'll let me someday but um they haven't let me join yet but yeah they're, <laughs> they're wonderful at it and magical at it and still put out songs that i'm like oh i gotta hear the new soul song because yeah. you know they're songwriters at heart so yeah and they're certainly not afraid to sort of take some chances as well it's not all you know three chords and it, and no, it's, it's all, not all. Yeah, they they're ultra creative, and they have a fighting spirit. They have, uh, yeah, they're 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 not necessarily what I mean by it. They're, yeah, I I just meant like that that path of like we're staying in the band and the band, you know, like I I, I don't know. I just I want to keep moving and I want to move lean and mean. And if I want to play it quiet, I want to play it quiet. And if I want to play it loud, I want to do that too. So like, I just want, I just like the freedom of like kind of being able to paint with whatever brush I reach for that I feel like is the most compelling one. Now, granted, like you could make a case that doing that um, limits your points of access or something. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, I guess, but I mean, I, I guess I, I wouldn't want, to do things that would pander and then have that not work. Cause then nobody's happy. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> oh man. Like let's put the extra whoa, whoa, whoa's in there and, and just play it with loud gain and fast, get fast drums. And, uh, and then people don't like that. You're like, well, it, that's not the way I wanted to do it. And right? I, so yeah. I don't know. I shot it's, myself it, in both feet. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So I think like that's been my approach. I don't know, man. It's such a, it's such a hard thing to know. And so you just, I guess like in the moment, it's like, well, what a, the song isn't done yet is kind of what plagues me. Okay. I don't know. That's not exactly right. It's not exactly what I want to say. It's not exactly how I want to say it. And then when you get over that hump and it's working with your piano or your guitar or whatever, then it's like, all right, well, let's try to record it. And then you're essentially trying to solve that same problem. All right. It's not exactly the way I want it to, to feel when it comes across the speaker. And then hopefully you solve that problem. And then your next challenge is like, well, how do we want to present it to people so that they understand? And hopefully along the way you, you made it sturdy in those other instances. And then people go, oh, I like this, you know, so it's, it's yeah. just a weird, it's a really weird job. Do you write mostly on the acoustic nowadays? I mean, is it easier for purposes I of a, being have. a dad? Oh, okay. I always have. Yeah. The, the, the last time I wrote loud electrically 
there's a couple times it happens just because like I'll have a guitar out and the amp on and which is increasingly less so. Um, and then a song will come, but even back in the loved ones and even in painted black, I was writing on acoustic guitars. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So it's just, I don't know. They, they just kind of hang around easier. There's less to do. Like you can yeah. grab it, do the idea faster. Yeah. Um, the painted black stuff always sounded weird. Um, <laughs> but, but a lot of times, like when I was just sort of adding ideas to, to Dan's like hardcore songs, I was looking for like a hook part. And so I'd like mess with it and be like, what about this? And, and if it sounded pretty good, just with an acoustic in my vocal, I was like, well, it'll at least be sturdy enough to bring to him and then yeah. you can mess with it. So, but that's like, also, I don't know. That could even be for all I know, it could be 20 years ago. We did that. I can't even remember. It would have to be, I think at this point, wouldn't it? Something like that. Yeah. It's like, we're in 2022 and yeah. I feel like I was in pain at, black well i don't know in the early 2000s yeah so. it's in that neighborhood yeah yeah to answer your question i've always um i've always written stuff on the acoustic um with with some exceptions you know so there's there's a good amount of songs that i've written on piano and then there's a good amount of songs where i just happened to grab an electric guitar and a riff came out or a a song kind of poured out, but it's mostly done. Like the, the sort of crafting of it and like, Oh, does this work? Does this not work? Is, is with an acoustic in hand. Do you find you're a better acoustic player now than an electric player? Like, does it fit better, particularly from doing, you know, the you and Tim things for so long and, and maybe just from messing around with an acoustic at home more, do you feel like you're a better acoustic player than an electric player now? Like, does that, does that sort of muscle memory um, go away or does it come back? when you pick up a Les Paul Jr. or whatever? I mean, I think that the thing I've done the most in my life is probably play. Well, in formative years, it was play loud. And so I just am naturally, I gravitate towards that, but I don't think I'm particularly good at any of it, frankly. Like, I mean, that's, I've gotten better at, at, at my guitar playing, my electric guitar playing, my acoustic guitar playing. Certainly that part has really improved from where I started, but I mean, they say comparison is the thief of joy. And so I'll, I'll, pre <laughs> I'll preface this statement with that. And so it's, it's important not to compare, but if I were to, to real guitar players, I'm just, I don't cut the mustard. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I really don't. And so, which can be really frustrating when you're trying to like flesh out an idea that has more, like in my mind, it's more complicated than it is than, I, than my fingers can do. Um, but there have been moments where I've like, I've noticed improvement. Like I uh, recently was, we were playing some shows in Asbury park to warm up for our tour. We did like some. That's a great shows. little spot, isn't it? That yeah. Danny, and the Danny Clinch's Danny Clinch's yeah. gallery and Pete from the souls came by and I didn't know he was even in there. We were sound checking. He was coming by for a visit and he was like standing behind a pole. I didn't know he was there. And I was doing this finger picked thing. And he was like, yo, you got really good at finger picking. Yeah. I was like, I did No. And he was like, remember how long it took us to finger pick stuff on resolutions? And I was like, oh, right. And so like, it's interesting to kind of like take a little bit of inventory every now and again and see where there's been improvement. But I don't think I'm that good at any of this stuff. <laughs> like any, and, and none of this stuff do I think I'm like, uh, even, you know, singing people, oh, you can say, I don't really think that I, I think Adele can sing, I think. Um, and so for me, what I kind of go back to and the older I get, the more I sort of lean on this is like, 
I think people are here. The audience that I do have are here for a perspective. That's the only thing that's indelibly mine is the, and so, which I think is why I'm a pain in the ass when it comes to writing. Songs. <laughs> like him will be like, that's a good line. I'm like, yeah, but it's not yet. And, and so, and he sort of painstakingly will like abide that now that we've written lots of songs together. He's like, okay, if it's a Dave song, we're going to have to really it doesn't <laughs> just rhyme. It's got to have this other element. But I do think that, you know, if I can't offer exemplary guitar playing or expert singing or, you know, great soloing, all the things that people seem to like, maybe I can offer a perspective that is unique. And, and that's what seems to keep me engaged in a long conversation with the audience and that's that's a you're, compelling you're probably right about that you're probably right. <laughs> i could say although i will say that i had i remember years ago uh when the last falcon edition came out um i remember having a conversation with brandon kelly about your guitar playing and about both of us going like i knew he was a good guitar player but i didn't know he was that good a guitar player oh please but i think it may be because like your focus was being the guitar player in that band and not necessarily being the storyteller and the songwriter and frontman. That, and, and so, it, but he was like, he went on and on about how impressed he was with the stuff that you wrote. And then when he was like, eh, maybe that's not what I had in mind, like completely rewriting stuff and, and changing it. And, and he went on and on about how, how like wonderful and underrated a guitar player he thought you were. That's and really so cool. That's nice of him. I mean, I also think that I, you know, that's funny you say that, that he was complimentary because I intentionally brought guitar influences. I knew he would hate <laughs> into that band yeah. because, you know, he's like a real dyed in the wool kind of punk rock guy right. in terms of like a lot of his aesthetic. Um, and there's certain things when you're like of a certain age and a certain set of tastes that are just not you are not into Pearl Jam you are not into Primus you are not right. into Jimi Hendrix and I don't know that I know that he hates Primus I think he doesn't like Jimi I don't remember what his tastes are exactly Yeah. but I remember us talking about what he wanted from the guitar angle and I was like well here's what you guys have already done I can kind of understand that and I can kind of replicate it Um. but here's what I'm thinking we can add and he was like oh Oh my God. And even, even sitting there tracking the guitar, I was like, I would come up with an idea that he would like. And I was like, I just totally stole that from, yeah. from, Primus, from Primus or Pantera or something. And he'd be like, what? That's where you know, like, yeah, that's what I, or the Isley brothers, or he probably likes the Isley brothers, but like stuff that was totally outside of what he was, the, the, the sort of genre constraints of what he was writing within. And it was interesting how much he liked those flavors when they were like put in kind of like square pegs into a round hole. And, and yeah. so it's funny that he ended up liking it that much because I think the source material for me was so totally outside of what he would have been happy with, you know, he like get this shit out of here. <laughs> Although I, and I guess maybe if you were making a Lawrence arms record, that stuff wouldn't either fit or wouldn't fly, but maybe because it was a Falcon album and because it's uh, by nature going to be a little weird and, and then car crashy in some ways, which I mean, in a good way, yeah. Uh, th then maybe some of that stuff kind of works because it's completely outside of his sort of twisted brain. Yeah. I was trying to go. There were also like cartoon influences in, in my guitar playing where I was like, let's try a Woody Woodpecker thing here, or let's try like, 
um, you know, when Bugs Bunny pushes Elmer Fudd down a flight of steps, like there, there were things like that where I was trying to do on the guitar because yeah. because the song had a certain level of chaos that are never it's never going to show up in in my work that I was like, well, I see what you're doing here and it's mayhem. Let's double down. And it, it, it was fun to do. Yeah, that was that was the most fun of that project was actually just driving into Chicago with my Telecaster showing up to the studio and just getting super weird in that studio for like a day or two. That was like, to me, that was like the most fun of doing that. The shows were fun too. There was all this other, you know, it was nice to, to play riot fest or whatever that was. And you know, the, the different things we did with that were cool, but I really liked the creative element of like Brendan kind of sitting on a couch and me and the engineer and me being like, what do you think of this? Because I would say like 75% of the ideas he liked and it was fun. And it was like, no, there was no stress. We didn't care about the outcome. Yeah. yeah. Or at least I didn't. I was like, ah, whatever. <laughs> let's, let's try this. I think he talked too about like both you and Dan about like, he has his idea of what weird is or whatever. And then to hear both of you guys sort of, uh, give your interpretations of what he thought weird would be. But then it turns out the stuff that is actually weird is really just because it was like a Primus riff or whatever. Like, so not doing what Brendan thinks is weird, but just doing whatever, but he'll think it's weird because it's not his, like not his lane. So that's an interesting sort of backstory. Yeah. I would like to do um, more projects like that, where I'm put into a different, role i mean even in to some degree like tim's record is like that i didn't go to the tracking of it because i didn't want to put too big of a thumbprint on it you know like i wanted them to kind of do their thing and and what they got is not what i would have gravitated towards initially and that would have been an error like what they got was so cool because um because i sort of stayed out of the way and and i think like there there is a, a push and pull with collaboration that is exciting and the older I get, the, the, the more I just totally embrace that, you know, cause you're, you're much better in a mix. I think a mix of people, a mix of creativity than just like totally on your own. I, th- I think that that, that can work, but I think that collaboration is really fun. Well, it's gotta be an interesting piece where you and Tim have collaborated for a long time on your stuff, but then to collaborate on his stuff I can imagine that it it's probably a good idea that you step back a little bit in the tracking part because otherwise you probably fall into old habits and old patterns and, and things like that. Yeah. I want his artistry to be his own. And um, despite writing the songs together, like in the songs that were clearly Tim songs, I yielded to his artistic thing. And mm-hmm. so that should be true in the tracking and the, and the artwork and all that other stuff too. So it, it's interesting. Like, hopefully they cross pollinate and, and, um, and it just keeps that creativity and, and excitement alive. Cause that, that's the life force to me. Like, that's what I'm chasing. Um, the older I get, like I'm, I'm less compelled by most of the reasons why I initially like decided to do it are have changed it's more yeah. about the creative energy and and the exchange of ideas than it is like i want to go play shows you know like you know i'm like i want to stay home with my kids <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting how it changes but i i think i think the fervor for that for me still is what kind of guides me through these processes or processes 
Is that the word? It's all the same. Nobody <laughs> cares. <now. laughs> that that being said about, you know, wanting to stay home with your kids, how has it been sort of navigating, especially with the mermaid the last handful of months and getting out to play the full rock show again? I mean, I hesitate with how honest to be, honestly. Um, Fair enough. It, it was hard. It was really hard. I desperately wanted to go back and do it. When something's taken away, you want it all the more. We waited so long, what felt like forever, you know, that two years, whatever. Right. But we got out there and it just felt different. Um, I remember a conversation I had over the couple of weeks of touring this past tour. And my manager was like, look, you you're either at the same place you were in 2020 before the pandemic or improved. So why are you struggling with this so much? Like all the metrics would point to like, you're doing well. And the band sounds good. Too. Like the Mer- oh, and the band, they're great. The band sounds and great. Hands down, the best iteration of the band. Like there's, everybody can play, everyone can can perform. Everyone's adding something that makes us greater than the sum of our parts. And so all that is also a box that's checked. So I really had to do a lot of introspection about it. I mean, I'm in therapy, so um, I talked to him about it, and yeah. I just think there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. There's a lot of like uncertainty in my life. I'm, I have three-year-old kids. I, um, they're three already. Good grief. Yeah. <laughs> happens yeah. fast. Doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. I mean, and I just think like all that's to say the 90 minutes or whatever we played every night were great. And I could lose myself in that moment and be, um, most of the time in a state of, of bliss. There were certain shows that were bigger struggles than others, but, and I love it. I love the fact that there's people there and, you know, they're supporting it. I love to play guitar. I love to be in a band. I love to present it that way. All that's still true. The logistics of touring, the amount of mental health that gets put into question when you do it, your physical health, the lack of sleep, um, the distance from your family, all that really, really, really wore on me. It was it was hard. It was hard to reemerge and, and assume it was going to just be wonderful, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Coffee in the morning and rock and roll at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And have it be like, whoa, I was not prepared for this. I was not prepared for what America looks like right now. I wasn't prepared for what inner cities look like right now, like pulling into the towns and seeing what the pandemic's done and, and what you know, a lack of a social net in the country uh, looks like. Um, so it was a lot. It was a lot to, to process. And I, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of other bands touring all at the same time. And COVID's still sort of ripping through certain tours and preventing people from earning portions of the, the tour. It's just very, very, very complicated still from my vantage. Mm-hmm. And so it was... Um, bittersweet and um i'm really looking forward to going to europe but also sort of ironing myself my resolve for like okay this might not look the way you think it's gonna look it's it's is europe mermaid or is europe you went to yeah we're essentially touring with the band for through through october 1st okay and then we'll 
switch into duo mode for a while. Winter um, mode. <laughs> winter and spring. Yeah, I, we're, we have a bunch of big plans that are sort of related to some of this in that, like, I need to make it look like it. I need to make it look the way it, it needs to look so that I don't lose my mind, lose my family, lose my um, my heart, you know, like I, I've got to make some changes to the way we do things um, because it, it just, things change, you know, yeah. like, and, and that's okay. Like, I don't, again, like getting back to some of the things we talked about earlier, like I don't want to go out and, and necessarily, I don't want to go out to the detriment of my health or my family's health. I have to like make that kind of all look the way it needs to look as my children develop. Like once they're in school, I think it's a little bit of a different thing, but these couple of years are precious and, and I got to be careful. So um, we'll pivot a little bit. You'll see the band again. Um, but once we're done with Europe, it'll be a minute, I think until we, until we navigate those waters, I think we're, we're going to need a reason, a specific reason to kind of paint with that brush. And then we'll, we'll go back and forth. And I think that that'll, that'll just keep things healthy. Yeah. But I feel like that's the way you've sort of been navigating most of the solo career waters, right. It's kind of doing yeah, what you you're right. had to you're- do both creatively and professionally and family wise and, and to make your, therapist happy and <laughs> <laughs> my therapist is, is happy if uh, i get well if i'm happy so he's all right but no i i um yeah i guess uh, i guess um i was just kind of surprised at how hard it was i i, I kind of and maybe i'm just feeling my age i just felt like whoa this is I got into a really good routine at home with my, with my yeah, kid. Yeah. And I was like really healthy. I had done this like fitness regimen and um, I was eating really healthy and getting sleep finally after all these years. And then to kind of go reverse most of that, just by virtue of being out and in, in a different town every night, I was like, Whoa, this really kind of blew me out of the water. I, I, I need to get my sea legs back. I feel like so. it's been weird going to shows to be honest with you. I, that, that's a, tell me about that. Yeah. And there, and there's, frankly, there's, there's a lot less than I have gone to the last couple of years. Anyway. I mean, I've seen you a couple of times. I saw, had to see hot water a couple of times because you have to see hot water. I've seen Corey mm-hmm. a couple of times, but I've really, really scared back the number of shows for a variety of reasons. Sure. Um, it, which I do feel bad about because there's you want to support everybody that's had to put their creative things on hold for the last couple of years and give them your money and buy their yeah. merch and shit like that. But but it's weird to go out to shows and it's weird to be, um, especially if so, you know, I've had a lot of family things going on. Like my in-laws are in their mid seventies. My parents are, are in their late sixties. My grandmother's still around. She's in her late eighties. If yeah. I want to see those people, then I don't want to kill them, you know? Sure. So like, I don't want to bring something to them. So then you really have to sort of pick your points where you're going out and it's like, well, okay. If my father-in-law's birthday is coming up or if Easter is coming up, or if this event is coming up that I'm going to be with people, maybe I shouldn't go to shows as much those couple weeks beforehand. So I don't either get sick or bring something to them. And this is this weird calculus that goes into yeah. what show you're going to go to when it used to just be, Oh, am I working on Thursday night? Uh, is my kid a basketball on Thursday night? Yeah. My wife's home to watch the kid. Oh, so I'll go to a show. But there's a whole lot more layers. And then even being out amongst people. I've 
Yeah. I've, do, I've done a few because of what I do for work. I've been at a few conferences the last couple of weeks amongst other professionals, other therapists, case managers, things like that. And it's, it's a, everybody's excited to be back out, but everybody's mm-hmm. still kind of weird. Is, oh, is the, exactly. Is the word man. I can use and, and the anti-mask people and the pro-mask people. So you add that to it and, and the, the whole politics around it to use small P politics. Like it's a weird time to be out in public at a place other than the grocery store. And even that. <laughs> I agree. I'm also just like, we had this opportunity to slow everything down for better, or for worse. And I feel like, you know, we're stepping on the accelerator so hard now. Yeah. I kind of started to get used to the, a little bit slower of a pace. Well, and now we're in our mid forties. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think that might be more of it than I'm, I'm kind it, of giving, giving we, it. We hit news. pause on what we were doing, except that, that now we're two years older trying to do it to go well, back yeah. out into it. Yeah. Inertia is a thing, you know, like staying is. in motion is a thing. And and when you stop, it's harder to, to push forward. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to work a lot of that out, um, figure out, you know, not throw the whole baby out with the bat, not like I'm quitting and becoming a fill yeah. in the blank, um, whatever that would be. Um, Going back to contracting, I'm I'm not necessarily saying that, but I am. No, the, the cost of wood is so high right now. Can... <laughs> yeah, but as a contractor, I'd make. Well, that's true too. <laughs> that's no, true I don't too. know. I just I I'm I'm do have a deep deep gratitude for being able to do this. It's something I wanted to do my whole life, and I've gotten to do it for most of my life, and so that's not lost to me. I just think, I guess I'm I'm in a unique position where the same amount of people come if I bring my band or not, if I come with Tim or not, if it like, and so because I have that gift, I want to lean into that and be like, okay, well, here's the best scenario for us. It's not necessarily to go out and play 200 shows in a year. Like right now that's bad for my, for every, for my whole enterprise, you know, for me as a human, for my wife, for my kids, like, I don't, I, I can't do that. And it's good for your therapist. <laughs> <laughs> right, does, right, right. Yeah. Those seven hour long phone calls a week. <laughs> right. Yeah. Job security for him. Right. But, um, but yeah, that's thankfully there's other pivots to make, you know, there is going to play the bull run. There is going to play, um, you know, listening rooms and different things, you know, doing different things and, and people seem to come either way. So it's like, all right, well, Cool. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to do some of that in order to stay balanced and hopefully do good work that people keep coming back for, you know, because at the end of the day, as we've talked about, like my chase is for that song. And, and hopefully if you're well enough, you can get to that song. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to take up too much of your, it's morning still where you are. Is it? I don't know. I don't, uh, almost it's all not. A blur. Almost uh, not. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate talking to you every time, man. I appreciate it too. We've had quite a lot of good chats about it. We always get to the, we cut to the quick of, of so much of it. And, and I appreciate that. I appreciate the, like the long conversation we've had, um, uh, you know, as I've tried to have a long conversation with, with the audience. And, and I mean, I appreciate like it. Man. Eight or nine years worth of conversations. It's fun to sort of watch because I go back and read my own work sometimes uh, rarely. Cause I like to 
because then I critique myself and imposter <laughs> syndrome and that whole thing. But I'll look back at the conversations we've had. I'm like, man, so that was really cool. <laughs> really cool, man. I, I agree. I always feel so comfortable and, and, um, and, and you're, you're one of the people that understand the work and, and, um, I feel like you invest the time. And, and so we can talk about it in a different way than, than, mm. than I, I can with some. And I, and I appreciate that. I try to talk to people that I'm really interested in and that do, do things that I'm really interested in. And so I, I don't necessarily talk to everybody, although, although I'm trying to be interested in more and I'm trying to like, you know, so we're relaunching dying scene where we've got a bunch of new podcasts sort of under our umbrella now and doing the whole thing. And we're trying to bring a bunch of different, like it, we don't need 12, 40 year old white dudes talking to each other all the time. Like we need some other sort of perspective. The problem is that 40 year old white dudes are really into like talking on podcasts right now. So, <laughs> like it's they the love, thing. I, I love have, the sound of their own. I have voice. the beard and the little Sennheiser microphone. I'm like the, the, <laughs> Mid 40 starter kit. 